Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of HPO. I'm excited to have a return guest here back from, I believe it was episode 128 that we, that we had uh, Rob Wolf on the show. And Rob's back to chat about some some new stuff and some interesting stuff. Uh, recently, uh, he was part of a, of a documentary called Sacred Cow. I think a lot of my listeners have probably checked it out. I've watched it. Uh, it, it was a very interesting interesting film. I think we're going to chat a bit about that as well as maybe some electro, electrolyte talk and and if, uh, if if Rob allows me to be a bit selfish here at some point, I'm, I might I might poke him for some some feedback on some continuous glucose monitoring type stuff, just because I've been playing around with that this past few months as well. But um, other than that, Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, that'd be honored to be back. Always happy to bring down property values. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, we'll see. I think your 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 last episode did quite well for us. <laughs> awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to talk about. Uh, some of the sacred cow stuff. Cause it's been something that we've chatted about on a variety of different times during the show, uh, just with like regenerative agriculture and just, you know, the way that we go about our food systems and things like that. And, you know, it seems to be just more or less, uh, one of those topics that are quite polarizing for folks, uh, nowadays as you know, we have like the talk around climate and like where our contributions are as humans and, you know, what we're doing to impact that both positively and negatively. And, and uh, you you did a bit of a deep dive into that, I guess. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Diana Rogers and I have been thinking about working on this project for close to 10 years. And uh, uh, and how do I, I say this? Uh, I, I feel like I, I am early to the scene on a lot of stuff and, and occasionally like so early that um, it, it just no one cares wouldn't, yet. It, yeah, no one cares <laughs> yet. Like nothing, nothing would happen with it. And so uh, I think Diana wanted to kill me at, at various points because she's like, this is really important. This is really important. And it, it is, and it always has been. But, um, you know, I want to say it was like six years ago that I, I, we were at a, a, a Palo FX event. I said, you know, we're getting close. And then, and again, I think she wanted to kill me because um, there's been this kind of long standing back and forth between, I guess, kind of the more meat centric crowd and the, the vegan crowd and, um, when you discuss things around, say, like meat consumption, uh, it, it's kind of like a game of what, what I call vegan whack-a-mole. It, it starts off on health. And then if you do a good job of unpacking the health topic, then it shifts to usually either ethics or the environment. And if you do a good job on either of those, which is a non-trivial 
thing, you know, then it, then it shifts to the other one and it, it just kind of goes all around. So we knew that we were going to have to tackle all of these things all at the same time and kind of find where the, the Venn diagrams of the uh, nutritional, ethical, and environmental considerations of a meat-inclusive food system, where they, they really overlapped. And I mean, there have been whole books written, and, and a, a good number of them, and very long, on just pieces of those subcategories, you know? And we were kind of brazenly going in and saying, well, we are going to tackle all of them. And when we turned in the book manuscript, we have both the book and the film Sacred Cow. It was over 600 pages, the initial manuscript. And that got whittled down to about 280 pages. And I'm actually pretty happy with the way that the, the editor provided input in this story. And the feedback on the, on the book has been phenomenal. And interestingly, um, we've had virtually no pushback from say the, the more vegan centric side of this story. And I find that fascinating. We were really braced to, to get this kind of onslaught. And I, I, uh, I won't say that we got everything in that book, right. But we really, really tried to let the, the data drive where, where things went. Uh, maybe a possible example of that is um, uh, it, there's some, some stories or I'll, I'll call it folklore at this point out in, out in the, the world that uh, pastured meat, meat pastured meat specifically is nutritionally superior to uh, say conventional meat. And we went into creating the book with that as an assumption, like that was one of our line items. And when we got in and started researching things, we just couldn't build that case. Like, and again, this is really specific to pastured meat or, or just, you know, kind of, kind of meat uh, specifically. When you look at all of the data on the nutritional characteristics of grass fed meat versus conventional meat, there's some tiny differences here and there. The pastured meat has a little bit more omega-3 than the, the conventional meat. But even in that situation, we're talking about just tiny amounts of omega-3. Uh, a a three-ounce piece of salmon has as much omega-3 as eight pounds of pastured meat. So if we're really going to die on a, on a hill, like it doesn't seem like that's the right hill to die on in this case. And... Um, uh, uh, pastured dairy is very, very different. Uh, pastured eggs are, are much more nutritious. Wild-caught fish is far more nutritious. But this one thing of pastured meat versus conventional meat, there's just not that big of a, a nutritional difference. And we tortured the data. We, we hired an independent PhD researcher to come in and look at this problem. We didn't provide any of the material that we had. We just said, hey, in your opinion, or, or we want you to research and give us a delta, the difference between pastured meat uh, nutritionally and, and grain finished meat. And they came back with exactly the same thing that we had. And um, we have had some really remarkable pushback on that topic. Like people were really angry at us mm -hmm. and, and really cranky. And it's one of these things where Diana and I literally had the conversation where we like, should we just lie about this? Because it, it you know, with, with like these vegan documentaries and stuff like that, it's like wall of veganism. Like it's good for this. It's good for that. It makes you morally superior. You know, there's just this airtight case. There's never any, any exception to that. And then we had this kind of glaring exception here. And the, the, the main takeaway that we had was that meat and animal products are really, really nutritious. And that there's, 
if we're, we could build a really solid case around the ethical considerations of, of pastured meat versus conventional meat. Um, you could make some environmental cases, which we, we do go on to make later in the book, but the, just this nutritional piece was um, hard to defend in, unless you wanted to lie. And we've been wondering if the, uh, the kind of vegan centric crowd has actually left this alone in that they know that they just don't actually want to put any sunlight on this thing. Like possibly we did a good enough job that they don't want anybody going over and kicking the tires on it because we, we, we really did try to cite every single line. Like, where is this from? What are the points? What are the counterpoints? Like, uh, almost giving kind of a, a weighted average to the, to the, the data that we had there, you know, it's like, okay, the bulk of the data says this, but there might be some exceptions here. Like we tried to do a really good job at that while also hopefully not making it like dry as, as a pork chop left out in the sun for a week, you know? So it, it, um, uh, again, not to toot our horn too much, but I feel like we did a really good job on it and it, it tackles all these different topics. Like, is um, beef like this water hog? Does it consume massive amounts of water? Does it uh, produce disproportionately large amounts of greenhouse gases? What does all that mean in the, the bigger context? So we ended up digging into a lot of different things, actually ended up digging into some interesting uh, kind of social justice topics, you know, and all, all props to Diana for the research she did on this, but it, it's worth mentioning, um, in this world, you know, the, the world that we're in now, rightfully, people are very concerned with a lot of different social justice issues. And one of the, the things that I was unaware of is that around the world, there are tens of millions of women who, because of the, the places that they live, they are unable to own land at, at legally. Like it's just mm -hmm. within the, the cultural norms that they are not allowed to own land, but they are allowed to own livestock. And that is, in fact, the way that, that tens of millions of women and children around the world support themselves. Like this is their, their social status. It is their economic engine. And um, you have entities like the World Health Organization suggesting that those folks who are practicing traditional ways of animal husbandry are disproportionately impacting climate change above and beyond what would be seen from the transportation sector and that they should halt this activity immediately and with no, no alternatives offered whatsoever, you know, so they're demonizing these people who are practicing traditional methods of animal husbandry that have been around for hundreds or thousands of years uh, painting them in a, in a light that is really negative from this kind of climate change perspective and then offering absolutely no, no alternatives other than just literally, uh, you know, apply the feedback of the industrial row crop food system and, and sign up on that and, and get going with it. So it, it, it's been cool in that we've, we've had some, um, We've had pushback from some interesting areas, like the kind of meat elitists who are, uh, you know, gave us pushback on like on the grass fed meat topic. We've had pushback from there, but then we've also had some interesting, uh, I guess, alliances or at least a, a, a tip of the hat towards us for addressing some of these like kind of social justice concerns like uh, around the, the, the property ownership in developing countries. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting kind of side topic to it all that I think a lot of people, myself included, have 
haven't really thought of, or if we did, it was kind of a little more fringe. Cause when I think of, uh, just outside of the nutritional, like if we're looking at it as nutritional wash, essentially, then, you know, the incentive for somebody to go and spend a little extra money on like a, you know, a, a grazed cow, a cow that's been grazed its entire existence, um, and a regenerative setup is possibly to support that particular individual who is selling that product versus say like, you know, a big conglomerate that is, mm-hmm. is, is going through that type of stuff. So, I mean, you, you listen to guys like, you know, Alan Savory and Joel Salatin, well, Joel Salatin, especially, cause he's kind of like out in the field more or less still, like you just, you kind of want to buy his stuff after hearing him right. talk just cause you're like, this guy really cares and loves this. It's, it's like his life passion. So, um, I think that's like kind of another, that's more, maybe a more like first world version of your story there. Um, but yeah, you know, when, when you get into a lot of that different stuff, like the moral things and things like that, it just, it's, it can get so tangled and it becomes just a, a question of like, well, are you morally more concerned about those individuals who make their living regeneratively farming or, or farming subsistently, or do you care more about, you know, the cow itself? And then you get the whole conversation of the, like, you know, what is the alternative for that cow or any ruminant creature for that matter? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you get, when you get to the point where you're, you're, free ranging these cows their entire life, it, you have a pretty, it's pretty hard, at least in my opinion, to make the argument that that is a, a, a subpar existence for that particular creature. Right. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to kind of see how that all plays out. If there'll be a, a vegan campaign against, against sacred cow at some point in, uh, uh, in, in going forward with that. But, uh, the, the, you know, the one, the one thing I wanted to ask you about too, that I often see kind of come up around this topic is it seems like you check a ton of boxes with like, okay, this is like definitely ethically superior to conventional farming. This is better for the environment. Uh, you know, we're, we're maybe even supporting someone we actually know, or we can see, we can put a face to the, the product. We're not as separated from our food source and, and all that stuff. And then it comes the question of just, is this something that's sustainable? Can we act, could we actually kind of flip our conventional system towards something like this and make that work? Or is that going to be a situation where if we did that, we'd be in that same, we'd be at a point where like, yeah, you can, but you're going to be limited to three ounces of beef per week or something. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And you know, that, that can it scale or can it feed the world question? There's some irony there because almost no matter where you are in, in this picture, like carnivore or vegan or what have you, most people kind of recognize that the conventional food system has an expiration date on it. And, and this is another thing that we, um, we kind of debunked in this. There's this kind of meme that goes around that we have 60 harvests left because of topsoil erosion and whatnot. And man, we tried like crazy to find where this, this came from. And there's no scientific source for this. What it ultimately was, was a, a woman speaking at a United Nations meeting. And she just offhand said this. Some people in the media reported it. And then it just took on a life of its own. And, and uh, uh, the irony is this is, again, one of these things where it would really play beneficially for us to say that because if there is an expiration date on industrial row crop food systems, then we need something else. And it actually paints kind of planet of the vegans and, and uh, uh, impossible burger and all these things that are built around row crop food systems in a very negative light, because we know that it's not going to go on forever. And, and even these, these notions of like growing meat in a vat and whatnot, 
you have to provide the inputs from somewhere, which is the byproducts of the industrial row crop food system. Like, it's kind of funny when you walk people through this process, they, they kind of have this sense that like things just magically grow in a, in a tub. And I don't know if it's because I worked in a microbiology lab, but like, if you want to culture bacteria, you provide some auger for them to grow on and it's this growth medium. And that stuff comes from, from somewhere. And it's usually the byproducts of, of some type of uh, agriculture, but nobody asks or it, nobody really asks, what do we do if the current food system cannot support us? And we, we do know, even though we don't know for sure, I think that this notion that there, there are, it, it's kind of like saying the world will end due to climate change in 12 years. Like, I, I think that that's a dubious claim. The, the data doesn't really support that. So then when you throw out this thing that we have 60 harvests left, and there's no real data to support that, I think that that's dubious. But is loss of topsoil a thing? Absolutely. Is the encroachment of desertification where arable land is converting into desert, which, which is completely un, unproductive, is that a problem? Yeah, it absolutely is. And none of these things really get kind of parsed out when we start thinking about regenerative agriculture. And we do know that regenerative agriculture can play a part with this, this rotation of animals and planting, which is what people have done for thousands of years. And so in this kind of regenerative model, you could be raising animals on grass for some period of time, apply some degree of agriculture to that area for two to four years, and then take it offline from agriculture and return it back to grassland. And we, we could produce a remarkable amount of food in a, a scenario like that. Just on the grassland usage itself, in the United States, there are huge tracts of land that are not um, legal for people to run animals on. So they are grassland or they're marginal land. They can't be used for any other type of agricultural application, they're a fantastic place for different grazing animals. And particularly if we could diversify things and do more like goats and lamb and uh, sheep, I think there are some areas that would be amazing for camels also, but um, I, I don't think we're going to, we're going to get like a camel meat and milk industry really brewed up anytime soon. But there are some places like the Great Basin that uh, 10,000 years ago had three different species of camel in, in the area, you know, 15,000 years ago. But these, these areas, uh, there are, uh, there's a couple of different layers to this. There are a lot, there's a remarkable amount of land that is amenable only for grazing animals, can't be used for agriculture. And because of legal restrictions, governmental restrictions, it is, it is not being used. And then when we shift gears to the, the areas that have been desertified, that have shifted to desert, that the Great Basin itself, this area from like Reno, Nevada, out to Salt Lake City, down to, to Las Vegas, that used to be grassland. People can't believe it, but that, that is an area that was largely overgrazed. And this is a whole nuanced discussion to have. Um, if you have too many animals on an area, particularly what, what Alan Savory calls a brittle area, it may have grassland, but it has uh, very little rainfall over the course of a year. If you overgraze that area, you can damage it and convert it to desert. But interestingly, if you undergraze those areas, similar things can happen. So there's this kind of middle ground where you need some amount of animal husbandry, but it, it needs to be rotated and not just rotated haphazardly, but in a way that mimics predator prey interaction. These animals need to be pretty tightly bunched. 
and they need to be moved over the land in a rather quick fashion. And in the film, we actually document a rancher down in the Chihuahuan Desert who has reversed a million acres of desertified area and converted it back to grassland. Like you, when, when you drive out to this area, you just drive and drive and drive and you're in kind of the classic like saguaro cactus and, and scrub brush and everything. And then on the horizon, you can see just this kind of weird, you know, thing out on the horizon and it's chest high grass. And, and you drive into this and the people who live in this area, they've lived there for generations. They didn't even know that grass could grow there because it's, it's been a desert for, for several hundred years. But this guy using rotational grazing practices has recovered this grassland, uh, you know, turned it back into grassland. So there's all these desertified areas that can and should be converted from desert to grassland, which increases the ability to grow a, a whole host of food, not the least of which is animal products. And it sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere because when plants grow, they pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And as part of them actually growing, that carbon gets sequestered there and that becomes part of the carbon cycle. Animals eat it, other things eat the animals, but some of that carbon goes below ground and is actually becomes topsoil. That's where topsoil comes from is the, the matrix of carbon taken out of the atmosphere and combined with the minerals in the soil. And that's where we produce topsoil. And nobody knows quite for sure how much topsoil can be produced. Like some people will poo-poo that, that whole process and say that that, that maxes out after uh, 20 or 30 years. But again, we currently have grasslands and forested lands that are becoming desert. And so at a minimum, we can reverse huge tracts of that land, make it arable again, make it retain water. So if you have grasslands, it, the rain that does fall in the area actually stays in the area instead of just eroding it. And it, it will contribute to mitigating the, the, you know, the total impact of greenhouse gases and it increases the total amount of food that we're producing. So I don't, it, the, the rough estimates that we have, if you really go a minimalist uh, kind of multiplier is that we could increase the amount of meat production in the, say like North America by about 50%. And, and that's a really low estimate that, that that's kind of throwing out all kinds of, of other kind of considerations. If you look at what Joel Salatin and folks like him, what he's able to do, um, th there's a concept called cow days per year on a, on a particular plot of land. And it's how many, how many uh, cows can be fed on that area. And it depends on the grass production and the humidity and the water and all these types of things. But Joel, in the area that he is in, in Virginia, which is a wet, moist environment, and it's very, very conducive to, to doing things like this, but he has nearly five times the cow days per year that his neighbors have who follow conventional practices. So in certain areas, we may have a multiplier of as much as 5x what our current production is. And then in other areas that are more marginalized, it may be only 50%, but the, the long and short of this is that there is a massive potential to both expand the land that is producing animals, but also to, to get more leverage out of the, the land that's currently being used. And again, dovetailed into that is, is the notion that we, this is a system that could exist literally for thousands, tens of thousands of years. This is emulating the way that biology works and the contrast is this industrial row crop food system, which is wholly dependent on the, on, uh, uh, the inputs of, of 
you know, synthetic chemical fertilizers that we know damages the topsoil, we know leads to soil erosion and ultimately feeds into desertification. So, um, I know that most of the folks that are listening to your podcast are probably pretty bought in on like an animal centric, you know, uh, uh, diet and whatnot. And even though this story plays favorably for that animal centric diet, I would encourage people not to buy into it just because it, it fits their dietary leanings, but to really be critical about it so that we can, we can really understand this story, you know, like is the claim that we can reverse desertification accurate? Is the claim that we can sequester large amounts of carbon um, via holistically, you know, managed animals accurate? Uh, can we scale animal product production significantly, uh, you know, in a, a variety of ways? Like, is that claim accurate? Uh, it, it, if people could get to a point of really understanding those those kind of uh, scientific talking points. And we detail these things. We provide the references in the book and we lay out a much more detailed description than what I did here. But then we're in a position to really start affecting some change. Like there's a, a guy, pretty well-known um, environmental advocate, uh, George Manbiot, who just a couple of days ago, he was really deriding uh, uh regenerative agriculture. And he, he did one of these really, he did something that was really kind of wacky, which he, he drew these connections and basically made the case that, um, regenerative agriculture is becoming a haven for white supremacists. And so the climate change topic has become so politically incendiary that now we're getting these kind of interesting social justice topics kind of woven into the whole thing. And what, what's fascinating for me, just watching it, even though it's like a train wreck, is that um, accusations are being leveled that then when you just try to unpack that, you know, okay, maybe, maybe now you're a white supremacist, even, you know, so I guess like this, this uh, Mexican farmer who's a native to the Chihuahuan desert area, who's reversing desertification at a massive scale, now has this really gnarly social justice topic that he's going to have to deal with as a consequence of, of, you know, what George Manbiot has, has said. So it's a, um, it's a really interesting and kind of scary time because, uh, I I've always known that just promoting a meat centric diet was kind of a, a hot button topic. Like we've been censored on, on social media for that. We've had uh, kind of shadow banning. We've had problems with, with Google and whatnot, um, but it, it just kind of continues to scale up. So we really do need people well-educated on these topics. It's not as interesting as athletic performance. It's not as cool as abs and skinny jeans, but it, it, you know, if we want access to this food, we really do need an educated group of folks that can talk about this at a high level. And I, I hope that the book and film provide that kind of framework to at least get people jumped in on it and thinking about it. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. 
And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like even if you you came to the conclusion that minimizing your meat or animal product intake was in your best interest from a health standpoint, you would still feel a lot better about yourself getting it from a regenerative farm than, you know, pastured animals than you would a conventional set of anyhow. Yeah. So it does seem to kind of appeal to like a wider range of folks than just the argument of, you know, you know, meat good or meat bad kind of a thing. Yeah. But, yeah, um, you know, the other interesting thing that that just crossed my mind when I was uh, watching the documentary and just thinking about that question of just like scalability and things like that. And uh, obviously like there's, there's some, there's areas that you mentioned that are like, that make a lot of sense places that used to be grasslands that now are desertified, have been desertified and uh, you know, returning those back to their kind of natural state pays back in multiple ways. The other thing I thought of that would be interesting would be, you know, when I was still a teacher I was at this project-based school where we would do a lot of hands-on stuff, project stuff with the, with the kids. We build lessons around activities versus, you know, the standard, like first you go to math, then you go to science mm -hmm. then you go to that sort of thing. And you know, we had like a community garden in the back and all that stuff. And I was thinking to myself, it's like, if we really wanted to maximize land use with stuff like this, I mean, how cool would it be to have like a, an educational like initiative at the national scale where school districts have, you know, parts of their property allocated towards gardening and then teasing in the animal side of that as well. And yeah. having some ruminants, some chickens, some, you know, goats, everything like that kind of weaved into that. And you, I mean, there's just so many things you could build lesson plan after lesson plan around that. You'd be connecting the kids with their food source in a very direct way. And you'd also be providing food and using something that was otherwise just like a blank stretch of land, uh, maybe next to the football stadium <laughs> going right. towards, uh, and obviously there's going to be variants from district to district, but, uh, I mean, it adds up when you go na nationally with something like that. And I think it would be, um, a really cool add on, even if it was just, uh, I hear a lot about just what is the next step in education as well from the conventional setup of where we've got these kids who are, just turned 18 and now they're being asked to make a big life decision as to like, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And then I've got to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to invest in what I think I want to do the rest of my life when I'm 18. Right. And they just don't have a lot of life experience. I mean, some of them have never had a job before, so they don't even know what exactly is appealing to them and not. And having that setup like that, where, you know, maybe your senior year, or, you know, if I want to get really wild, like let's branch it out an extra year and have them like work on something like that and, uh, you know, put together that and really learn just like the business side of that, the actual hands-on side of that. And, 
maybe tease out a little bit more of what they actually want to be doing with their lives versus just, you know, guessing, guessing at it by some, you know, some test that says like 30% chance you'd be a great plumber or something. Like that. Right. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, maybe that type of educational system made sense when people did a, a job, a, a career a profession for 30 years or whatever, and got their mm-hmm. golden handshake and, and were done. But that's largely gone. I mean, other than maybe some military or police or, or, or some governmental type things, like people just don't do that now. Like fo- folks are generally rotating, ha- have some degree of career rotation, like every four to six years. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a great point. And, um, you know, there's so many interesting opportunities on that, that kind of community driven food system. Some of the challenges we have uh, include zoning, like uh, uh, the Salatins have this really amazing thing called the Racken House. It's a rabbit chicken house. So they have uh, within this, this big open air, you know, building, it's open air, but it, it, it has a kind of wire mesh on the sides. Uh, they have rabbits in cages up above and, and they get to get out and, and do different things within. They have chickens down below. They feed the rabbits basically kind of like lawn clippings. And then the rabbits eat the lawn clippings. The rabbits poop those out. The chickens pick through the, the you know, the rabbit poo and everything. And they have amazing productivity out of that. And uh, Joel's son made the case that like, at the end of every cul-de-sac in America, if you had one person that their job was to be like the rabbit chicken person, and then everybody on the street, they take their lawn trimmings on unsprayed, you know, and all that and provide it to them that you could have a massive amount of food produced and minimizing the green waste. Like I, it just blows my mind when I, 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 I drive somewhere and it's like kind of green waste day and you, you can see like I'm in Texas and People mow their lawns and bag it up and stick lawn trimmings in uh, hefty bags mm-hmm. that are going to be here until the sun explodes and consumes the planet, you know, and, and, uh, uh, but that's a whole cultural thing that would need to be shifted with people would need to be comfortable with food production much closer at hand. And, and, uh, there's a lot of societal things that, that need to be done to change that. But the, I think a, a strong takeaway from that is that it, it speaks to the ability for regenerative agriculture to scale and to fit into our lives. Like uh, too often people think that a, a future food system needs to look exactly like the current food system that we have now. And that's kind of as foolhardy as, as imagine, you know, in the, in the 1970s, if you had asked somebody, Hey, how am I going to advertise my business? And it's like, oh, you'll do it on the tel- on the telephone, not with a telephone book. They'd be like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? You know, and and now I don't even know if tel- like every once in a while we get a telephone book, but it, it, you know, it's this thick instead of this thick, and and nobody advertises them in them anymore. You know, so the world can change pretty remarkably, and I think that there's some really compelling. Um, stories that can be had both from, from examples within the United States, but definitely the way that food is produced around the world, like uh, uh, different parts of Central America, South America in particular, they don't have a ton of storage. There isn't huge amounts of grasslands, but they rely on these guinea pigs as a, a primary source of, of nutrient dense protein. And, and it's about the size that a family would eat in a city. I mean, they're they're pretty good size, but they, uh, you know, this is, 
some of the parts of regenerative agriculture that we get very kind of cow centric or chicken or pork centric. And there's a lot of different ways that regenerative agriculture, regenerative food systems can play out. And they should, like they should really speak to the, the needs and the opportunities of the local environment instead of having kind of one big system thrust upon everybody, which ironically is what the industrial row crop food system really is. It's kind of a one size fits all that, it, it, you know, is kind of precarious. Like if one thing goes wrong in that system, uh, a lot of people can, can suffer as a consequence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it gets really interesting when you think of just the, the acceleration of technology and kind of where we are today versus where we were even 10 years ago and how exponential that has progressed over the last couple of decades. And, you know, I think, uh, if, if we want to keep going towards left field, it's like one other thing I thought about was like, you know, we have the conversation that's starting to get, I essentially got popularized by Andrew Yang when he ran for president with just like, well, what is the threat of autom automation and stuff like that to like the average worker? Um, are we going to be sitting on like a huge group of, uh, you know, unemployed folks who their job essentially went to a machine um, I think we're seeing that to a degree at like some of the service level stuff, some of these entry level jobs, but it's going to creep up into some of more technical jobs as we move forward with that. And it's, it just seems like it's one of those things where it's like, you can look at it going terribly wrong, or you can look at it as like this incredibly liberating side of things. So when I think of just some of these like community cooperation of like what you described with, well, we've got the person at the cul-de-sac who has the, has the setup and everyone else is bringing the trimmings over there. Well, if people have that much time available to them because they don't have to be driving 10 hours a day because that job got automated, it's like, we obviously want to give those people purpose, give those people something to do with their time that keeps them feeling like they're, you know, they're doing something productive and valuable. It's like, it seems like you could really spearhead some of these problems with that, uh, with that type of, with those type of opportunities is maybe the way I'm trying to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, an interesting aside on this is, um, the very algorithmically driven professions, which ironically, like uh, medicine and law are arguably going to be one of the, the first big areas that artificial intelligence just kind of does away with. Like as it is right now, there are AI programs that do a much better job of diagnosing people than living, breathing doctors do. And, and legal concerns are similar. Like there are, are legal programs that do a better job of like navigating what legal solution should be at hand than lawyers do. And so these are some really important high paying areas that, that will be automated because of the kind of systemization of their, their whole process. But creative endeavors, uh, problem solving, are, are, it will arguably be the last area that artificial intelligence really makes any headway. And uh, ironically, um, the industrial row crop food system is highly, highly automated because they control so many different variables with chemical application and, and whatnot. But the regenerative ag practitioner it is morning, noon, and night problem solving. Like that is all those individuals do. And it does tend to be fairly human labor intensive. And there's going to be some interesting developments there, like using uh, infrared drones or satellite imaging to help better inform when areas should be grazed and whatnot. Like those are, are things that are, are going to help improve yields in that story. But it still is a, a situation where, again, Joel Salatin makes it, this case that, they're very human labor intensive. And it, 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 
there's really not going to be a good solution to that. And the people that he has working for him make good money. They make a professional wage doing that. And this is something that they do for, you know, their life. So uh, ironically, uh, even though say like early 19th century, you know, we had a lot of people working in uh, kind of the farming world and city centers were rather small. And then we had a massive shift because of automation and whatnot. I don't know if we have a wholesale shift again, but we, we might find ourselves with um, instead of like 2% of the population being in, in farming or, or food production might end up with 15, 20, 25% of the, the population being there at, at, at some point again, because of this need for people to do things, but also just that the, you know, the economies of scale of doing things in this regenerative way are, are really uh, play out favorably. Yeah, it's it's just interesting and exciting in some shape or form to kind of think about just what what the world will look like in ten years, twenty years, thirty years, and, and beyond that. And and uh, yeah, you can you can go you can go really negative, you can go really positive, and you can go everywhere in between. So right, I, I tend to try to lean towards the positivity for my own sanity most of the time. <laughs> but, yep. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. So. Um, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask you about as you guys were teasing through this stuff is just like with like the water usage thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we had a uh, you know, doctor, Sarah place and, and, and Frank, uh, professor Frank Mitloner on, and they talked mm-hmm. about this a bit too. And one thing that was interesting to me was just how like we look at cattle as this massive water consumer, but you can also kind of look at them as a, as a, a bit of a water sink. And yep. when I think of like desert, like land that's been turned to desert, you kind of need to find a way to kind of hold that water there or keep it there versus it just running off or ending yep. up where you don't want it. What did you, what did you find with that in terms of just like having those cows probably on a little more of a rotational side of things, creating like a, an environment like that, where they were essentially these water sinks that were kind of helping ma- retain the water in the area, which ultimately would bring it to more of a grassland versus a desert. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Frank and Sarah are much better at this than I am. I'm citing their work. So I'll, I'll probably do a poor, poor job of, of representing that. But it's interesting. Um, when folks talk about the amount of water that is used in the raising of cattle specifically, I'm going to focus on them. Like the, the chicken and pork topic is a little, is different. And I, I think that uh, the folks that, um, have issue there. I think that there's more credibility with regards to resource allocation and whatnot, but something that is entirely missed in this story is even cattle that are in the convention, two things to this. Um, There are cattle that end in the regenerative or in the conventional system where they end up on, on feedlots that are raised throughout the totality of their lives on grass exclusively. But because of, of just economics, it's better for the producers to just put them into the regular system. There's a non-trivial amount of, of cattle that uh, they're in a very good area. And if a, if a farmer can get by raising the animals just on grass, that's a win because they don't need to buy outside feed. And so there's some percentage of, of meat that ends up in the conventional system that has been on grass its whole time. Aside from that, the rest of the animals spend at least 70% of their lives and sometimes more on grass. And so it's not like they, they spend an enormous amount of time in these, these kind of CAFO scenarios, but then mixed into that whole story, when we start looking at the water that is allocated for 
say like beef production, it's presented as if that water could have been used for something else. Like we're stealing water away from something that could have been used in a much more productive fashion elsewhere. And the, the water can kind of get categorized in one of three categories, green water, which is water that falls on the earth as rain, snow, mist, some type of precipitation, blue water, which includes lakes, streams, and to some degree below ground aquifers. And then we have gray water, which is usually the, the after products of like animal processing or animal husbandry, or, you know, like a, a septic system or sewer system or, or something like that. And the, the green water that it represents, uh, you know, how it's allocated into both regeneratively raised animals and the conventional animals is somewhere between 94 and 96, 98% of the water that's allocated. This is water that falls on grassland and it provides for that ecosystem. It, if it doesn't fall there, there is no grassland and there is nothing else that you can do with that area to, to do things, you know? I mean, it, 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 so it's kind of a, a, a better kind of gripe that people should have would be like almonds. There are in California, enormous number of the almonds there, they are irrigated from groundwater that is limited in amount that is being drained at a, a, a rate that will not be replenished. And then the vast majority of those almonds are actually sold abroad, mainly to China. And so that is a real resource allocation gripe. Like that is a, a limited and dwindling resource, the groundwater that's being pumped into almonds. And then those things are largely being exported. Whereas this, this story around the water use uh, involving grasslands, like we hope that those grasslands exist for 10,000, 100,000 more years. And we hope that there are still grazing animals on those things. And so it's, uh, it's interesting that, that um, even folks in the, the, the scene, like the, there was a really amazing paper that came out of the Netherlands that, that looked at these different water allocation buckets. And when they initially published this piece, they pointed out that there was, it, 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 man, animal husbandry, be, you know, beef cattle, they just consume so much water. That was kind of their takeaway. And then when folks actually read the details of the paper, some people wrote some rebuttals. They, they were basically saying, you understand that this is grassland and that these animals are supposed to live on grassland. And what else would we do with this area were we not to, to do this? And the authors of the paper was kind of interesting. They were like, that is a really good point. I mean, there was this interesting back and forth on the, on the, the topic, but even the people that put some of this data together, like they were so in this, um, worldview that animal husbandry is negative, that they didn't really see the, the implications of their own work. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It gets interesting when you start to un kind of unpack that stuff and you hear, you just realize how many like quarter and half truths are kind of floating around out there. Right. Like, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, this has all been really, really interesting stuff. I think it'll be, be fun to share it. All right, folks, I'm excited to announce that Eggweights has partnered with me as an athlete and HPO podcast, and I want to share with you a few things that I use their products for. Uh, first, I love their run pods, which are these ergonomic weights that are two pounds that fit right in the palm of your hand. I love these to help with my arm drive and form consistency that they work with the University of Southern California's Clinical Science Research Lab 
to show the benefits for those. On the strength side of things, I'll actually sometimes go all the way up to their five pound handhelds here for box jumps and lunges. And finally, I really like their total massage toolkit that you can customize. I really like it to dig out some of those sore spots in my calves and hamstrings. All their stuff come in these great little nice egg weights tote bags. So check them out at eggweights.com. That's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S dot com and enter promo code ZACK15 for 15% off your order. That's Z-A-C-H-1-5 for 15% off. Alrighty, folks, now back to the show. Uh, I do want to maybe do a bit of a 180 and talk a little bit about electrolytes, if you don't mind. Sure, um, yeah. Uh, I know uh, you're... you're um, partly partly uh, responsible for me kind of rethinking about this a little bit because when I first started following a low carbohydrate diet I was noticing that uh you know electrolytes played a pretty big piece of the puzzle it's almost like they kind of like filled the void of the carbohydrate to a mm-hmm. degree is the way I kind of mm-hmm. looked at it and I remember one winter and it was when I was living in Wisconsin too so it was like it wasn't like I was sweating as much as I am out here in the summers in Phoenix but one winter I was, I was consuming like, you know, upwards to eight plus grams of, uh, of, of, uh, electrolytes per day, uh, during a, a pretty heavy training cycle. And it was just like, you know, I, I thought it was kind of weird because when I was following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, I just wouldn't even have the appetite or palate to consume that much, that much like sodium without, uh, having just, you know, my mouth be dry the entire time right. like, gagging right. at the idea of having another salty food item. But during, during that phase, I was like, I couldn't get enough of it. It seemed like, so, um, maybe, maybe to start is like, do we know what is kind of, what, what's kind of like the, the process behind the reduction of carbohydrates. And certainly when you get into kind of the more strict ketogenic diet, uh, why are we taking in more, more sodium and electrolytes in general? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it, a, possibly a good way to look at this is just, the you know, folks will oftentimes draw a parallel that ketosis is, is a, a fasting mimicking type diet, you know, that we're in a state of ketosis while fasting and a keto, properly formulated ketogenic diet is remarkably similar. Like it would be, you'd be hard pressed to take blood work or look at metabolic markers and say that person is fasting and this person is, you know, eating a ketogenic diet. Like it would be kind of hard to figure that out, but um, one of the key features there is that a, a process called the naturesis of fasting occurs and when under, particularly under fasting, but to some degree also on a ketogenic diet, uh, insulin levels drop significantly relative to even a modest carbohydrate intake. And as those insulin levels tend to decrease, we also get a down regulation of the hormone aldosterone, which causes us to retain sodium and we retain sodium, we retain water. And it's, it's interesting in that, that naturesis of fasting scenario, we tend to shed sodium at a very high rate, which tends to be higher in the extracellular fluids. And then the body though, it needs to maintain a, a, a balance between sodium and potassium. So then the body is overabundant in potassium which can have its, its own significant problems. So then we start shedding uh, potassium and we, we get this kind of ping pong back and forth between uh, shedding the sodium, which leads to increased potassium excretion. And it, it can be a really nasty downward spiral. And it, it's interesting in medically supervised fasting and medically supervised ketogenic diets, 
Something that doesn't get missed is the need for appropriate electrolyte supplementation. And a, a beginning place is five grams per day of sodium specifically, and then our, our magnesium, potassium, calcium, et cetera. But the, the real linchpin in that whole story is, is the sodium. We definitely need those other electrolytes, but without adequate sodium, it's hard in a way for the kidneys to get the, the, the sodium, potassium, levels correct. Uh, so long as you get adequate sodium and potassium in the story, things will kind of sort themselves out. But if the body is deficient in sodium, you could make a, make a case that it, it's going to be more problematic for folks to, to deal with that. And they, I think that people get so fixated on protein, carbs, fat within this kind of low carb community that the, the importance of the electrolyte part of this story, like if we're in a medically managed, again, a uh, fasting scenario or ketogenic diet, the electrolytes are, are managed. Like it is part of the prescription, but then when this information makes its way out into the wild, um, it, it's rather haphazard. And I, I know for years, like I've been eating this way for, you know, more or less 22 years. And although I was diligent in salting my food, I was stunned with how under, you know, supplied I was in, in electrolytes and, and you, you, you articulated this better. I I've thought about this, but I, uh, you articulated it really well, which was, uh, one could almost make the case that the electrolytes take the place of the carbohydrates, you know, from this kind of performance standpoint, I don't know that it's a hundred percent one-to-one. But if somebody is really uh, lacking that low gear, that ability to grind, um, and they're low carb, and they're not addressing electrolytes, they may very well find a, a significant part of that low gear by by properly addressing electrolytes. I definitely did. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how I first kind of started playing around with it a bit was because uh, the thing I recognized right away was the a low carb diet, a low carbohydrate diet tended to preserve the low gear. And you maybe run the risk of losing the high gear in the presence mm -hmm, of volume. Mm -hmm. And when I'd find myself in these situations where it wasn't like I felt great kind of at a, a pretty like low to high aerobic capacity or for, for, uh, workout rate, I guess. Um, and then losing that last gear for some of the faster stuff, like the shorter interval sessions and things like that, or maybe some of the lactate threshold workouts. Um, I knew that like there was something else going on. If like all of it started to feel a little more sluggish and it wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. that I wasn't getting enough carbohydrates. If I went out for kind of an easy aerobic run and felt, felt flat and heavy on that one as well. And that's when I started kind of looking at electrolytes a little more and, and trying that out a bit. And, and that seems to flip the switch very quickly, Yeah. but it is interesting because it's like when you're out there running or working out, it feels almost the same as if you kind of bonk on a, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on a moderate high carbohydrate diet where you just feel like all of a sudden a ton of bricks got laid on your back and you're now, you know, doing twice as much work for the same result. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, one could make the case that in an athletic scenario, maybe the carbs are important, but maybe they're important because it causes you to retain more sodium and, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, even within, um, like, so the uh, American Council of Sports Medicine, they have a position paper on, on uh, electrolyte supplementation. And it, it was pretty jaw dropping for me. Like they, it, it, now this depends on the size of the person, the activity, the heat, humidity, a bunch of extenuating factors, 
but they had a starting place for someone in a, a, a active individual, humid or interestingly uh, high altitude or cold environment, you know, whole, whole list of things, but it was seven to 10 grams per day of sodium alone in this story, you know? And uh, I was kind of stunned by that. And we've seen people need more, even more than that, um, you know, within the kind of lower carb community, but this was within a, a, you know, one would assume a, a kind of standard high carb population, but they were, were recommending pretty jaw dropping amounts of sodium for, for folks that are at high motor output, you know, uh, a warmer, humid environment. Um, and then also interestingly cold or at altitude, one of the problems with being in a cold environment, you just aren't thirsty. And so you can end up in a, a kind of remarkably dehydrated state just from, from that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I, the other kind of tie-in I was going to ask you about, and I'm going to tease this out a little bit, cause I do have to eliminate some kind of, uh, some variables that could possibly also be implementing, but I've been wearing a, a continuous glucose monitor on and off for the last few months. And the, the, the interesting trend I see is like, I have uh, like, I'll have like, when I wake up in the morning, I've had like, just, I'll get a little bit of a, a spike in blood sugar for the most part, just from like waking up and kind of starting my day. And I usually work out the most of my workout in the morning mm-hmm. and I'll have like all of situations where I'm basically fasted from the night before and I'll even get a, my, my blood glucose to creep up during the workout itself. So it's like, it's not like, it's not calorie dependent. It's like mm-hmm. the physiological state of like, you know, the, I guess they would call it maybe the dawn effect um, in uh, the way it kind of plays out because I'll have like the second half of the day is completely different. Like I'll have like dinner, I'll eat a pretty big meal and sometimes it'll barely budge the needle on the glucose mm. monitor, mm. even with some carbohydrate. Like I'll eat it typically spikes a little more if I position carbohydrate in front of the meal versus behind the meal. But, um, but yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost like I'll have like the same meal in the morning and the same meal in the evening. I'll get two different like glucose responses. But the one that really stuck out to me was I, I, I'll have a cup of coffee in the morning and like, it seemed to be independent of whether I included carbohydrate or fat or protein with that, with that cup of coffee. And it was very small amounts. I tend to try to work out on a relative empty stomach. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking like maybe a hundred to 200 calories in most cases at the most. And then I, I did a couple, I did a trial where I took away that calorie source. I still had the cup of coffee, but I added a one of the packets of the, is the chocolate element. Chocolate salt. Yeah. 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 Which when, when yep. you guys sent me that, I was like, oh, this is great. I can put this stuff in my coffee, which yep. is the, the lemon, not so much, uh, not, you got to go with tea if you right. want to do that one. But, right. um, and I, it, it was like the flattest line I had in the morning with that. So I was wondering like, if, uh, if you've seen anything with like glucose response and electrolytes and if that has anything to play with it, cause I, I do have to tease out the, the small amount of calories I was having with the coffee, um, minus the electrolytes in most cases. So that's kind of my next step, but I was just curious if you had any foresight before I kind of take that on. No, we have, and it's, it's interesting, uh, maybe two, two places to kind of triangulate in on this. Uh, one of them is some work that Chris Masterjohn did two or three years ago, where he was talking about men and women who have to wake up in the middle of the night to pee. Um, recommending about a, a half a gram to a gram of sodium because it shuts down antidiuretic hormone. And so you, 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 you tend to, to not pee. And in the process of shutting off the antidiuretic hormone, you're also suppressing the other 
adrenal hormones. So like epinephrine and cortisol and everything generally go down. And so we started noticing that folks who were getting adequate sodium, particularly later in the evening, that they, they, one, they were sleeping better at night, which sleeping better always leads to better glucose response. And, uh, you know, they, uh, and you're more insulin sensitive and like all these, these great things happen. But more recently we have seen folks that, uh, specifically like, even when they're fasting, um, they notice that this kind of dawn phenomena and, or glucose elevations in general. And it's funny, it's, I, I'm wondering too, um, another confounder I'm thinking about, I think it's probably the sodium, but this one individual was using the chocolate salt in coffee. And I wonder if there's some antioxidant, something, another, but it, it, this individual was going from like the low one hundreds down to the, the mid eighties, um, pre-chocolate salt in coffee, post-chocolate salt with coffee. So, uh, uh, the fact it's got more than just sodium in it, I guess that muddies the waters a, a bit, but, um, yeah, it, and this is pretty new. It's maybe two weeks ago that we've really seen folks reporting they're wearing CGMs also and they're reporting that they're noticing that their, their fasted blood sugar is lower and also just their AM blood sugars are lower, which I, I find really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, cause at first when I noticed it, I didn't give it too much concern or thought because you, you look into it and it seems like within the kind of like the ketogenic world, it's not always necessarily frowned upon. It's mm -hmm. and I've talked to the folks at levels who do the continuous glucose monitor and they say, well, you know, you have your, your independent kind of like uh, glucose signature for you as the individual, which includes your lifestyle. And I'm like, my, my lifestyle is kind of uh, <laughs> wild relative to what the average right. person is probably going to be doing, but um, yeah, so I, I, I didn't want to necessarily like start trying to fix a problem that wasn't a problem at the expense of performance and things that had been going quite well. So, uh, but it is interesting when you, when you start to look at some of that stuff. So I might have to front load a little more sodium and electrolytes. Cause I do probably have a habit of taking in the majority of that stuff in the later morning, evening mm -hmm. time frames versus first thing in the morning. So that might be something to kind of play around with. And, or maybe like you, like you, when you mentioned, mentioned Chris Masterjohn stuff, uh, just adding a little more sodium, maybe put another packet of element in my, in the drink, I right. whatever drink I have before I go to bed and see if that, that kind of tailors it down a little bit and get a, get a variance there. But yeah, I well, mean, it's very self-serving of course, cause it, I'm presenting this as like the solution to all problems, but it's, um, <laughs> I've been kind of stunned by how many different scenarios end up benefiting from proper electrolyte management and in, in mm -hmm. particular getting sodium, right. You know, uh, uh, we've kind of doubled down on like adding uh, chicken bouillon cubes to the soups and stews and mm -hmm. stuff like that, that we make, uh, at home. And, um, we we've just noticed generally feeling better. So, I mean, it, it I think kind of by hook or by crook, like finding a way to, improve that I think is going to benefit most folks. Maybe the only exception is if somebody's still eating a pretty junk diet and they're hypertensive, they probably don't need to supplement sodium all that much generally. Yeah. You know, that would probably be the one caveat there. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask about that. If, did you see like an upper end where you're like, Hey, these folks are just going a little too crazy with it, even in the context of like a, a ketogenic or low carb diet. And they saw some negative ramifications from, from overshooting their range. The main problem is disaster pants. Like, okay, uh, yeah. interestingly, it's not on the cardiovascular side. It seems to be on the, uh, uh, yeah, 
pooing your britches. Well, well, the vegans would say it's just a cleanse. So (laughs) yes, yes. And it will cleanse the room. Like you will be the only person left for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, cool. No, that's, uh, that's really interesting stuff. I mean, I, I know Rob, you've got a busy schedule and, uh, I think we're creeping up on how long I told you this would take. So, uh, I don't want to want to keep you going for past what you can, you can take, but, uh, if you want to share with our listeners where they can find you and I'll make sure to put in the show notes as well and, uh, get this out to everybody. Yeah, for sure. Uh, mainly hanging out over at, uh, drinkelement.com. And then also my, my, uh, kind of community is the healthy rebellion and that's join.thehealthyrebellion.com. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. Um, but otherwise, uh, thanks for uh, coming back for round two, Rob. Zach, thank you. Huge honor. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at zach.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.